everybody to this special edition of the Med Student Over Easy podcast. I am Andy Little. I am one of the hosts of EM Over Easy, and I am joined by three amazing people, and we're going to have a killer conversation. So let's go around the table, and we'll start with the one and only Dr. Casey McGillicuddy. My name is Casey McGillicuddy. I am a rising third year at Avent Health East Orlando, upcoming chief next year, which is very exciting. I'm happy to be here. Well, I guess I'll go next. My name is George Willis. I am the Associate Program Director at UT Health in San Antonio. It is an absolute pleasure to be here as well. I'm Brian Barbas. I'm an Associate Professor of EM at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine in the Chicago suburbs. So for this episode, I want everyone here to imagine I'm a medical student. It's my first day on emergency medicine, and you've sent me to go take a history and perform a physical and I have to come back to you and present that patient to you. Walk me through the way we do this the best way possible the first time. So I actually think that the first step isn't even when you go to see the patients. It's at that very beginning of the, of the shift. And it's about setting expectations, having that conversation with the faculty, the resident who you're working with, and finding out their preferred style is really going to take you far. Because we're going to give our own preferences and recommendations, but these are going to be a little bit different than maybe the supervisor you have on a given day. So having a rigid set won't necessarily help you, but finding out what they like will help guide you on that shift. I always find that that's the best part of any teaching and being able to set up feedback is that pre-setup. No, I agree 100%. So I, I was the former clerkship director at University of Maryland for 10 years. And it was literally the first thing that I told med students on the first day of orientation is I, I'd tell them, you have to walk in the door, introduce yourself, say to the med student who's working on the shift and ask, how do you want presentations to occur? Because every attending is going to give you a different answer. I want my presentation in three minutes. That's all I'm giving you. Or I want the full you know, internal, quote unquote, internal medicine presentation, <laughs> but you know, every attending is going to be different. And so if you, if you walk in kind of doing what you did the day before that attending might completely hate your presentation. And so it's super important on your first day or right at the beginning of the shift to kind of walk in, introduce yourself, say you're the med student who's working with that attending for the day and ask, you know, can you give me like a 30 second rundown of how exactly you want my presentations? Sometimes they may tell you, you know what? I just want to hear your presentation and then I'll give you feedback on how to improve it from my perspective. And that that is worth its weight in gold because that's how you're going to get a good grade for the day is if you meet that attending's presentation style, then great. If the next day you have a different way of presenting, then that's also great as well. So you're going to learn a whole bunch of different styles of presentations. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a lot of my job, especially as a resident helping medical students is prepping them for when they actually present to the attending and giving them like the inside scoop on what the plan could be or different options or just resources that we have specific to our emergency department. And so when we run through any kind of presentation and I know I'm working with one doctor versus another, I always tell the medical students like, you should know all of the information for all the follow-up questions, but depending on the attending, that doesn't mean you need to give every single detail up front, but also be aware of it when they ask you those follow-up questions that are really important. Yeah. And I think once you set those expectations, then you can go on to the next steps of like, of prepping to go to see the patient and then present, which, you know, before you go in getting your 
to the room to get your history, if you start building that mental outline, building that differential, getting the questions that you might want to ask based on that differential will help you then formulate what you're then going to present. So it's kind of like that preparation. I love that you guys bring this up because I think the reality in it is that emergency medicine is a very we all do things very similarly, but we are different enough that if you apply this one size fits all mentality and how you present and get histories and perform physicals, you might not get in trouble, but you might find yourself lacking to specific attendings. I know we all have attendings who want every piece of information. And then there's some of us that want, what are you doing for the patient? I don't care about anything else. And so knowing where you stand as a learner is super important. So the medical student has figured out the person they're working with today, the style in which they're going to obtain information and then present it, where do we go from there? So I typically tell my medical students, and I actually tell my residents this as well, I don't want them to be biased. And I can't tell you how many times that the, the probably the most awkward conversation that I have with a medical student is when they present the like frequent flyer or the, the frequent visitor who comes in for chronic abdominal pain or drunk all the time. And they'll come in and they say that very biased statement. Oh, this person's here all the time. They're just here with their chronic abdominal pain. And I'm like, no, you have not built the clinical gestalt to have the ability to make that decision yet. So I want you to start from the beginning. So I tell them, do not look at the last few times that they've been to the emergency department, their last past medical history until after you've gone and seen the patient. So I will tell them to, you know, I tell them what I typically do, which is I look at the chief complaint and I start formulating my differential just based off of what the triage note says. This patient comes in with right lower quadrant pain for the past three days. And I'm like, okay, in my differential, I've already got kidney stone. I've got appendicitis. I've got ruptured AAA. You know, I've got a thing on my differential. And now I go in the room. And the first thing that I say is, hello, I'm Dr. Such and Such. Tell me what brought you to the hospital today, which confirms what the chief complaint is. And then I start whittling away at that differential. And my differential is going to have 10 or 15 things on it at the very beginning. And through the history and physical, that's the job of the history and physical is to start whittling away at those different things. Oh, this isn't appendicitis. This isn't a kidney stone. This isn't a ruptured AAA. This person just got punched in the stomach and now they just have a bruise over their abdomen. And now I know what I want to do. Now their job is to get to the differential part. <laughs> but And it, obviously, it's going to be dependent on what they're doing. If they're a third year versus a fourth year, it's going to be primarily focusing on the differential as a third year and then a little bit more as the as they get a little bit older in their, in their med school progression. But that's literally what I want in their presentation. I don't necessarily want the plan as much. That's not as much of what I'm grading them on. It's more on your abilities to do a good history and physical, come up with an appropriate emergency medicine differential, and then go from there. I like what you talked about when you were saying before you walk in, the chief complaint's the most important thing and building differential off that. I think you can also, especially at the medical student level, think of chest pain. And then before you even walk in the room, remember the PERC score. There's a lot of parts to it. Maybe writing some of those down that you always forget because you know we're going to ask about it. Writing down the heart score. There's so many tools that we use almost automatically. But when you're first starting out, everything's like a little bit you have to kind of get used to how you think about certain things and ruling out a PE in every chest pain, even just through their clinical presentation is something we almost try to do automatically. And for them, it's going to take a little effort to think of what they think is a straightforward musculoskeletal pain in the chest area. Why isn't this a PE? So writing down some of those clinical rules that we use every single day when they're not so used to it, I like 
I, I encourage them to do that just so they can, you know, tick those things off when they come in and we can talk about scoring and when we use it and when we don't use it and when it's appropriate. Yeah, I love things that both of you said, George, in particular, what you said about not reading the chart too deep. We actually refer to that as not doing the full chart biopsy. It's like a little, we've got these LVAD patients who are waiting lung transplant and on all these different medications. And then you go to see them and they're here for a stub toe. And it's like, you just spend all this time and uh, not actually thinking about what they're here for. So as Casey said, building that differential will help key in your questions, which we'll get to it in a little bit about how to stay relevant during your presentation. If you can have all those pertinent positives and negatives within your differential and know how you're going to sell that patient to me when you get to the actual presentation, you've now done so much of your work of the presentation in advance. And I tell them, if you walk in and the patient's very sick, you can call me for anything and you will get extra points actually if I walk in and the patient is very sick because I don't need a presentation. That shows me that you recognize that the patient was sick and you knew that something needed to happen emergently. I unfortunately had one person come and they told me, you know, their whole presentation. And at the very end, the last thing they said is, and I tried to feel for a pulse, one of their legs, and I couldn't really feel it that well. And then all of a sudden we had to like grab the Doppler and go and find it. And he had one, but it was one of those things where that was a more of an emergency that he didn't even recognize could have been an emergency. So that just showed me a different way of what their levels were. That's so funny that you said that. I had a very similar story. It wasn't a, a leg. I have to actually admit that I actually appreciated that this, this medical student who wasn't going into emergency medicine took this initiative, but this lady had come in for feeling fatigued and weak, and he knew that she had a history of cancer. And the patient who was in the room before that, that patient's blood pressure was still on the monitor and it was 60 over 30. And so <laughs> they went and grabbed an ultrasound and did an ultrasound on the patient and saw that the patient had pericardial effusion and then came back and said, Dr. Willis, Dr. Willis. So I just saw this lady who has a blood pressure of 60 over 30, who has a very large pericardial effusion and she's probably a tamponade. We need to do something. And I got up. I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and I go run in the room and this lady looks perfectly fine. She's perfectly fine. We check her blood pressure and her blood pressure is actually in the like 130 systolic. And I'm like, what happened? Oh, that was the pressure from the first person who we had on pressors who was going to the ICU. <laughs> but I totally appreciate. Now, the next time what you need to do is come get me when you see the blood pressure. We'll do the ultrasound together <laughs> rather than <laughs> you try to save the patient's life. I, you know, I, yep, I could have walked into that room while he was doing a pericardiosynthesis. She was going to crash in front of me. <laughs> Come get me the next time. So that that's a super important point. Well, I just, you know, you never want to step on someone else's toes. So I think with all this prep work now that like you've done all this, hopefully you take a couple minutes, if assuming the patient's stable, before you come over and present and try and organize it in your head. Because when you then come up to present, the kind of two things I always think about is stick to the script unless we've kind of told you otherwise. You know, communication in medicine's kind of been that standardized way we think about it a certain way when we're hearing the story and then trying to stay relevant. As the listener to your presentation, I'm really trying to hear when you're going through your history and physical and kind of trying to lead me on to where you think 
you're going on that differential. By the time you're done with your history and fiscal, I kind of already know what your differential and your plan is going to be. You've already told me that they're all the criteria for perk score and wells and that they're going to be low risk. And so you don't think it's PE and you gave me some of the things for heart scores and cardiac risk factors or reasons that may or may not have sounded like, you know, any or dissection or pneumothorax. So I've already started to hear it and you've started to guide me. So taking that extra minute or two to organize and kind of think through those life-threatening causes, likely causes, and convincing yourself why it's not one of those before you come and present it to me is always great. Yeah, I love that. What I actually tell the, the med students to, to do is to think about a patient's presentation very much to like what you described as it's a story that you're trying to tell me. You're trying to convince me that this person has an MI or this person has appendicitis or this person is having a PE. And the way you tell the story is really what's going to convince me one way or the other. One of the things that I always tell all the medical students is that they're in medical school and in their being in medical school, there's one thing that they hate to be and that's wrong. And so what do all medical students do to prevent themselves from being wrong? They write down every single thing that a patient says. Oh, baby, when I was 15, oh, I had toe surgery because I broke my toe, but ma'am, you're here for your chest, but I'm still going to write that down because it's important. <laughs> it might be completely pertinent <laughs> to them. So what I told all of my medical students to read, I give it to them during orientation as a part of their orientation packet is the three minute emergency medicine medical student presentation. And it's a really good article. It's about six pages, a really quick read. And what it does is it takes the pertinent part of the past medical history, the social history, the family history, and puts it into that first sentence. Now, a lot of people have, I'm going to say, bogarted that presentation style and now have used it to the extreme bit that even when I get some of my off-service residents or even some of my emergency medicine residents presenting, hey, Dr. Willis, so I have a patient who has a history of coronary artery disease, hypertension, diabetes, previous AAA, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. And I'm like, where are you going with this? Like, I don't need to know all this information. What are they here for? Please tell me something chest pain related. No, they're here because their left toe, their left toenail came off. And I'm like, why did you tell me all that other stuff? It's not pertinent at all. So I try to stress to them that telling me the pertinent parts of their past medical history, the pertinent parts of their social history, the pertinent parts of their, of their family history are the things to put into that first sentence. But a lot of times when they tell me that first part, I can kind of see where they're going. Hey, Dr. Willis, I have a, a hypertensive diabetic patient who's had coronary artery disease before, has three stents and smokes five cigarettes a day. He has a family history of early cardiac disease who comes in with chest pain. I know where you're going with your differential before you even finish the story. Now, if you tell me they had chest pain and the first thing on your differential is appendicitis, we're going to have a little bit of conversation. <laughs> but that three-minute emergency medicine presentation kind of sets the tone and tells the story of what's pertinent, what's relevant to tell me the story of what you think is actually going on on the differential that you have. I think it also reveals a little bit about how the medical student's thinking, because if they're walking out of someone with a chest pain and they're telling you about their appy that they got 15 years prior, 
in the very first sentence, that I also think is a little bit of a disconnect. Yes, that's their surgical history, but it's not the relevant surgical history that we're really looking for in order to decide whether this patient's high risk or low risk. But if you had that same surgical uh, history in the setting of constipation and belly pain and vomiting, well, now we're talking about, you know, they're at risk for adhesions. And that's, that's like the next step. And so it's a great way, that first sentence, to risk stratify a patient and for them to tell us they kind of are in on what's going on and where if they consider the patient sick or not. Because if they don't consider the patient sick, that first sentence is really going to set the scene for the rest of the presentation that they don't think the patient needs to stay in the hospital or they do think that the patient needs to stay in the hospital. Yeah. And once you got that placeholder, that being relevant doesn't stop. I always joke like we're emergency physicians. We have ADD or OCD, something, but either way, it's a short attention span. So you should ask everything, get those pieces of information. But, and I use this as the example every time, which is you should know if they have a penicillin allergy, but unless they're here for anaphylaxis or you think they're going to need an antibiotic at the end of this presentation, I don't need to know about their penicillin allergy. That part is probably my favorite part that you said today is that when when people tell us a whole bunch, like I, I know that everybody in the emergency department is going to get their heart and their lungs and their abdomen listened to, but if they're here for toe pain, please don't tell me the patient has a heart that's regular rate and rhythm, no rubs, murmurs, or gallops. Their lungs are cleared auscultation bilaterally, no wheezes, rails, or ronchi. Their abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended, normal active bowel sounds and their left toe is deformed. <laughs> Why did you go? You can literally just tell me their left toe is deformed. That's what I want to know off of the history of physical. Tell me the pertinent stuff. I'll worry about the documentation stuff. You know, do I have 10 parts of the review of systems? Do I have all of the pertinent parts for the history and physical that I need in order to bill? That's not something for a medical student to worry about. So if I ask you those questions later, you know, all the medical students, because again, they don't want to be wrong. They're going to write everything down. I don't want you to write everything down. And usually what I do, admittedly, unless it's a really complicated patient, I tell them to tell me the presentation without looking at their piece of paper and they completely decompensate inside. I usually let them do the first one without it. I usually say, okay, do your first one. They usually tell me everything that they've written down on the piece of paper. And then the second time I make them do it without the piece of paper and they freak out and they're like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, calm down. Just tell me the story. Tell me the story of what's going on. You were in that room for 15, 20 minutes. You remember the pertinent stuff. Just tell me the story. And they tell me the story and they're like, can you give me some feedback? And I'm like, sure. Which one do you think actually sounded better? I don't know. I think the first one sounded better. And I'm like, you're dead wrong. That first one was super long, super boring, super not pertinent. The second one, you told me the story. I know in your head now what you think is going on with that person. And it, it was a perfect presentation. I'm like, really, Dr. Willis? Absolutely. And if there's stuff that I want to know from now on, if you wrote it down, tell me about it. You know, if I want to know, well, when was their surgery? Oh, I don't remember, but I wrote it down on this piece of paper. So now you can look at it. You have the information there. So they all started doing that. And now they know how to present. And, and like I said, I've been doing this for 10 years now. I can tell you that the number of, of, of people who have graduated up in terms of progression on terms of their presentation style has been numerous just because of the fact that they can, they can do it without necessarily looking at notes and do it very easily. 
And I think, especially in EM, we're looking for something that's less than three minutes long. So when they think of like the HBI, I, I think five sentences for an for a single chief complaint HBI in emergency medicine is more than enough. And they'll be talking, like you said, about so many different things have gone on in their life and their this surgery and that toe and this. But we are honestly just looking at the most focused three to five sentences in an HBI. And so that's not hard to memorize because that's the thing that they can build as a story as well. And it's also about their progression as them as learners. So we teach them how to early in medical school, how to be these reporters, and we want them to move to being analysts and I'm stealing this from one of our faculty at Loyola, who's now one of the assistant deans at the medical school, Dr. Boyle. She always likes to say, um, it's the difference between being a journalist and a columnist. Now, I know newspapers are kind of going out of the way, and most people don't know what that fully means of the column. But it's this concept of you're going in and you're getting that story, and you, that journalist comes back and just tells the events as it happens. You're reporting it back without any of their own opinion and insight into it. Whereas the columnist takes all those events, gives that detail from that patients, then reorganizes it to fit their thesis of what the patient's really here for, you know, or the events of it. I love what you said right there, though. There's a mnemonic called RIME, R-I-M-E, and it's basically someone's progression through the mastery of, of the subject content. So R being reporter, which is what most medical students are at the beginning. And then I is the interpreter and that interpretation of what they are reporting into something that is concrete is shows their progression from being just a student to being someone who's actually starting to understand the concepts of something. And the next one being master, which is usually right around the end of residency where they're not fully there, but they've got enough where they're actually able to do for the most part with without any help. And then E being an expert, which is what most attendings would claim. I am the expert. <laughs> but that's literally a progression of, of learning styles. And I think that this really kind of dictates how someone turns from a reporter into an interpreter. And I think you mentioned what you value and when a medical student presents is not only a really good history and physical, but the differential diagnosis. And I think that's the step that takes you from your third year, you're learning these skills, you're learning how to do this standardized way and approach and then communicate them effectively versus, okay, given this set of information, what is your differential for this patient? And that's like the next step, even going further what would you like to do about it now? That's even like one step further that hopefully they can get before they become an intern in emergency medicine. But I think that's really important because, you know, we don't always have to be right in our differential, but we just cannot be wrong in terms of the dangerous things that we're looking for and making sure our patients don't have. And Casey, I'm just going to take that one step further. Not only do I, I want you to, you know, come up with that and thinking through the diff that life-starting differential, but commit to it. You know, you are a student, it is okay to be wrong, but it's not okay to avoid that thought process. You know, it helps us as educators kind of understand what your thought process and identifying potential learning opportunities. If you're just hedging, then I don't actually know what you're thinking or what direction or how to guide or teach. One of our other attendings has this line, you know, everyone remembers Custer. He may have died, but he took a stand. I love that you guys brought up differentials. For me, this is the funnest part of working with medical students is that when they go see a patient, they have to have a differential that includes the following. 
First and foremost, what do you think it is? I want them to commit of the most likely cause of this patient's pain. Then I want them to think about what are the things we have to make sure it's not. So if it's a chest pain patient, we have to make sure it's not an MI, it's not a pulmonary embolism, and it's not an aortic dissection. Then I want them to pick some random thing they remember from medical school that it could be so we have something to talk about and then so they can teach me something. Playing this game is one of my all-time favorites in working with medical students. And if you don't do it and you're looking for a way to spice up the way you work with med students, I highly recommend it. Andy, I love that. That's exactly how I go about it. And particularly when students are struggling with building differentials, I always tell them, hey, think of that zebra. And on your way of thinking of that zebra, you're going to end up thinking of like four or five other things that are more likely. And I think there's also sometimes a fear for medical students of they don't want to be perceived as like silly. Because when you walk out of the 24-year-old female with anxiety's room who's playing of chest pain, it feels silly to say an aortic dissection. But you can just say, what? what's so wrong with saying, I do not think this is an aortic dissection because she's clinically not toxic appearing. I felt all of her pulses. They're equal and strong. And it just tells me that at this level, nothing's off the table. You've considered it. You have a reason why you don't think and are not concerned about it. And it gives you a broader differential for a dangerous thing. And that's how we are training people in emergency medicine to think. But it is kind of silly to say, but I think it's important as a, like a training exercise. No, I think not only is it important as a training exercise, but it is also an important tool for you, again, whittling down your differential diagnosis. Because in emergency medicine, we think, I'm looking at a chief complaint at the very beginning. I'm not seeing the patient in front of me. So in my head, my differential is only the emergencies. <laughs> this person's here with chest pain. Dissection, P-E-M-I, that's number one, two, three, four. You know, I'm, I have only emergencies. And then when I get in the room and the patient's playing on their iPhone, I'm like, okay, all five of those are gone. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of what I expect the medical student to do. So when you come back and you present the patient to me, your first words out of your mouth for a first diagnosis better be some type of emergency. If they came in with chest pain, you better not say, oh, Dr. Wells, I think this person just has costal chondritis. You're going to tell me why you don't think this person has an MI, why you don't think this person has a PE. So I expect you to come up with one or two, maybe even three emergent diagnoses that you've at least thought about, because it shows me that you're thinking like an emergency physician. Then tell me why you don't think it's those things, and then tell me what you actually think is what's going on. I think that's huge in terms of differentials. <laughs> I'm okay if you lead with costochondritis, but you better have given me that history and physical that led me that you didn't think the other things and that you're about to tell me why you don't think it's those those other things because i don't know every emergency medicine physician seems to have as a competition what's the youngest person you've seen that's had a heart attack and almost every one of us has seen someone in their 20s with some sort of life-threatening chest pain so those things shouldn't just take off the table because they're young but you can sell me why it's costochondritis and by selling me it's not the other things. No, I agree with that. One of the things that we've actually talked about on EM Over Easy is finding the learnable moment because that's what I'm looking for is the time when you feel uncomfortable as a learner. So if you tell me that you think this person doesn't have a myocardial infarction because they're 42, I'm going to tell you that story about the 12-year-old that I diagnosed with STEMI. And they're going to be like, oh, what? And so I'm going to tell you the way that you rule out a differential is by telling me a history or a physical exam finding that makes it something else or something that they don't have on their history and physical. You know, if you have a person who's a diabetic hypertensive, you're going to have to pretty well convince me 
why this person doesn't have ACS. And it better not be just because they're 42. <laughs> so we're going to have a long discussion then. <laughs> and I think it's also important that you have a medical student and they're going to see their third or fourth chest pain of the day. And at the fourth chest pain, they're going to be like, oh, and they're fine because I've seen three other people that were fine earlier today. And I don't really feel like I need to run through why this patient isn't a dissection. And it's important to like reemphasize, no, no, no. This is a whole other person. This is a brand new experience. And just because those other patients before you did it this way doesn't mean we're treating this patient the same way or this not. And or at the same time, you should also be saying the dangerous differentials out loud. I know you've already said them before, but this is a new patient, new chest pain, a new way of thinking about it because we're training students and then eventually residents to have each experience be when you walk in the room fresh and not getting outside biases to influence what you're seeing in front of you. Well said. Yeah, each patient is an N of one. Yep. Is that correct? So, and I was going to say this for when we started talking about the plan to present, but it works so much based on what Casey was just talking about, which is I kind of actually view every part of your history and physical when you're in there talking to a patient as it's all about the pre-test and pro post-test probabilities on your differentials. In which case, like every part of the physical listening to the lungs their risk factors in their history, it's the same as if you were to send a CBC or chemistry or troponin, that information you obtained is immediately changing what you thought that differential is going to be. Oh, they don't have these risk factors. I can move PE lower on my differential board. You know, it's the same thing. Their troponin came back normal. I can move ACS lower on my board. doesn't mean it's zero, but that's where this pretest and protest probably I always feel, you know, as part of it. It's every part of that physical exam is the same part as a lab test. It's data. So I guess getting into plan, which is I think super important. You know, the plan. I tell people that learning the the workup, the diagnostic workup, and and even the treatment for patients is not something that is inherently taught very well in medical school. I think medical school's job is to get them to the point where they're thinking about a plan, but not necessarily the whole correct plan. That's kind of what residency is for. Residency is really kind of how to work up the differential so that you're ruling out the bad stuff. So if they can come up with a plan, that's great. But I tell them and I tell my residents the same thing. You're going to have to justify every single lab that you want to order. So don't come at me with the quote words, I just want to get some basic labs because I'm going to say, so tell me, doctor, what are basic labs? Let's have a talk about basic labs. And the first thing they're going to say, CBC, and I'll say, what are you looking for on the CBC? And they'll say, I want to see if they have an infection. Well, infection was not on your differential, doctor. You did not say anything about infection. You said PE, you said ACS, you said dissection. Infection wasn't on your differential. So why are you ruling out infection with the CBC? So be able to justify every single lab that you're ordering. It's super important. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying is how does this lab test, how does this imaging test change your end differential, your end diagnosis? I use the computer language programming term of like, if this, then. So like, if this lab test were to show you this, how is it going to change? Then how is it changing your workup of the patient? And then when you talk about medications, I feel like medications, for some reason, just fall off the medical student's plan so often, especially when it comes to pain. It's something that we are so 
cognitive because we have metrics that deal with patient satisfaction, but that's not really at the level of medical students. So it's not something that they think about all the time, but even fluid, fluid's a medication, oxygen's a medication. And so saying that and emphasizing that they want to give those things, I don't know you want to give it until you say it out loud. And so it's not quote unquote obvious that the person in pain needs pain medication until you say it. Yeah. And I'm going to address how to shine aspect within your presentation and your, your differential is having that complete plan or at least attempting it is takes you from that like pass and high pass to that honor student. And there's this acronym that I like to tell them, which is like the rapid, which is resuscitation. Is there something unstable about this patient that needs to be addressed immediately or time sensitive? A is analgesia assessment, thinking about through pain control, you know, on your differential. P is the patient needs. So also thinking about their non-medical needs and social aspects, you know, how are their home management going to affect how you proceed with your plan? Thinking of the interventions, the tests, the treatments, what's that endpoint, and then your disposition. If you're sending them home, do they understand the diagnosis? Do they understand the follow-up and the next steps? Do they understand when to return? What things are going to affect the ability for them to even be discharged? You know, what's their home setup, housing, social support, et cetera. If you can be a medical student who starts thinking about the social aspect of their care, that is just such a gold star moment for you because often, even as attendings, we forget about these things in the rapid like pace of the ED, but students have that little bit extra time that we don't have to think about those and dig in. And I love when a student is able to think of that when I've forgotten it. And I think dispo is really important because we work up these patients sometimes knowing that if everything comes back normal, we're still admitting this patient. There are certain things like risk factors or their vital signs that dictate that they're coming into the hospital. And so if a medical student's able to recognize that and can even prep the patient for this idea of you know, with your recent stent and new chest pain, there's nothing in the emergency department we can do to rule out this new unstable angina. So therefore you have to come in for additional testing. I think that's also a step above. Or on the flip side, if they're going home, that they're able to prove that the patient's safe enough to go home, able to walk with back pain, able to eat with vomiting, things that prove to me that this patient can exist outside of our four walls in a safe manner. And if the medical student can say at the very end, I think they can go home as long as they're eating. I think that's a great way to round up and like end your presentation. I think that a lot of those things are, are super important. So George, Casey, and Brian, I'm a medical student. I've been listening to this amazing conversation. I want to know what are the big take-homes that I need to bring with me next time I work a clinical shift where I'm presenting to attendings and other residents. What are they? So I think the biggest is setting expectations at the beginning. I think that that First moment at the beginning, understanding what's being expected of you. Um, and we could talk another whole conversation about feedback in general and how pre-teaching is important. But finding out at the beginning of the rotation, beginning of the shift, like what the expectations are, really will take your presentation much farther in the view of the person evaluating you that day. Yeah, I would say the next would be to stay pertinent, stay relevant to whatever is there. Um, you know, you you have a differential. You come up with a differential based off of the patient's presentation. And then when you present your patient to me, tell me your vital signs, obviously. And then 
tell me what, tell me the story, stick to the story. Don't tell me a whole bunch of extraneous information because what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the head bleed that I have managing in room one and the STEMI that I'm managing in room two and the sepsis patient that I have in room three. And then you're coming with your patient. And although your patient may be stable, your patient also may be unstable. So tell me the story, tell me the pertinent information that I think is necessary for me to make a plan on, on my own or with your help. I guess mine would be to stay consistent, approaching each chest pain, abdominal pain, surgical, possible surgical patient as if it's the first one on your like first shift. When you see that patient, yes, they could be stable. This could be costochondritis, but you are still at the level of listing every single diagnosis out loud when you're attending at the level of saying all those diagnoses quietly to themselves. But that doesn't go away. And I don't think that they sometimes realize that because it's happening quietly in your head at the attending level, but it's still happening. And they need to be able to say it out loud at this level. And that shows that they are, you know, progressing in the way that emergency medicine doctors are being trained. Well, I want to thank Casey, Brian, and George for hopping on for this special episode for med students over easy. We want all the medical students to keep checking out other episodes as they come out for this series. And don't forget, we are the official podcast of the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. Head on over to asop.org today to learn more about this great organization and their resident and student organization and how you can get involved and get the benefits of being a member. Mm-hmm.